You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome to The Spear, the podcast about the combat experience, brought to you by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm your host, Tim Heck. Today I'm joined by Master Sergeant Zach Rosser, who's a TAC NCO here at West Point. Good morning. Master Sergeant, thanks for being here. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, before we get to your whole Army story, for those folks that listen that didn't go to West Point, what's a TAC NCO and what's your job? So attack NCO is really just a supervisor to a cadet company who is responsible for the development, the mentorship with a cadet company of approximately 120 cadets here at West Point. You have a, a co-worker who is a company commander complete who uh, has served in you know various branches and you, know, you, two, you together as a team and you know, you just both take on the responsibility of taking care of the morale and management and the discipline of the company. So this is a proper NCO, first sergeant, platoon sergeant, large kind of job. Absolutely. Your career has led you to this in mm-hmm. many ways. Tell us how you wound up in the Army. So I'm from Sanford, North Carolina, right outside of Fort Bragg, about 40 minutes. So it's a great opportunity to be able to be around military and family who also served. I went to basic at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, AIT at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I've been an air defender for the past 13 years, and I absolutely enjoy it. Started out in Texas, uh, went to Qatar, came back, Korea, Oklahoma, Texas, now here, and I'm out the door here next week to go to Japan. So I bounced around a few different places. A long career in air defense. We've done an air defense episode already. We're, you know, we're starting to see air defense play a bigger, larger role in Ukraine. What type of air defense? You know, were you in a trench with a stinger? Or are you at a, a FAD? Or are you at a Patriot? You know, what's your background in air defense? Right. So the area and the community of air defense where I serve is in the Patriot batteries. And I've really enjoyed it. Patriots, kind of a, a theater or a strategic asset in some ways, an operational and a tactical asset in others. Your evolution through the ranks, were they typical of what one thinks of when they think of an enlisted soldier? Honestly, I had no idea what an enlisted soldier would be doing. So whenever I got in, you know, I just tried to soak up as much knowledge as I could whenever I got to my first unit. And I hit the ground running because 
whenever we arrived, when I arrived at Fort Bliss, six months later, we deployed and it was just hundred miles an hour for the whole year while we were deployed. And I just took on as much as I can. And was that as a, as a young private or was that as an NCO? Right. No, that was a private. So you okay. work your way up from E1, E2, E3 or 4, E5 and so on, all the way up to E9. I came in as an E2. Uh, I was able to kind of take a test off of knowledge and a physical fit, fitness assessment, which allowed me to come in as an E2 and go through basic training. I got promoted to E3 shortly before we deployed in 2011. And from there, I just continued to work my way up the ranks. What's a deployment like for an enlisted air defender? So air defense definitely has a different deployment. From my opinion, wherever it is, whatever theater, you're defending some kind of strategic asset, if that's some kind of airport, some kind of military base, that's typically what you'll see. So you're not going to be out, you know, in the middle of nowhere uh, without some kind of support of an element from various branches of service. That joint experience as a young soldier, how did that influence your growth and development? I enjoyed it, seeing other you know, being able to work with the Air Force, being able to work with the Navy, I mean, it was a great great opportunity. It didn't kind of influence me to want to go towards what they have going on. Uh, I was able to keep focused on my own, on my job, knock out college, and it definitely helped me to task manage, personnel manage, definitely coming from no experience outside of high school to now I'm responsible for a few soldiers, a few trucks, you know, now I understand how important it is for that task management and the personnel management, like I was saying. That growth from you know, no leadership to a few soldiers to a few trucks eventually leads you to be a platoon sergeant, right? Right. What is the role of a platoon sergeant in a Patriot battery? Right. So, you know, when you get in, you're going to go through a few different positions from team leader, or first from crew member to team leader, squad leader, you know, section chief for you know six to seven years, six to eight years, maybe longer, and then you know maybe given the opportunity to serve as a platoon sergeant. So various responsibilities from the few soldiers to the few trucks, all the way up to thirty soldiers and approximately you know ten to twelve vehicles serving as a platoon sergeant. And that responsibility, you know, co-working with a, a lieutenant fresh out of if it's ROTC, OCS. West Point, various levels of education, various levels of knowledge, various levels of responsibility, and it's definitely a game changer whenever you are given the opportunity to serve as a platoon sergeant because you're really able to influence and impact and see the bigger picture, especially coming from a you know a junior enlisted position. Now you're kind of saying, oh, this is why we do this, and this is how it's going to affect. 30 different people if I make the wrong, give the wrong time to, to show up at work. When did that transition happen from when you went to a section leader to becoming a platoon sergeant? Um, I would say I became a platoon sergeant at the end of 2018. Uh, and throughout the years, I've served in the platoon sergeant position, but it wasn't until I left Oklahoma, the AIT schoolhouse, and arrived at Fort Bliss, Texas, when I became the platoon sergeant. And that was an eye-opening experience because as all the other times I thought I had it all figured out, I thought I knew what was going on, I still had that you know feeling of I still feel like I could know more. 
And when I showed up to my unit to be the platoon sergeant for the first time, it was different and it was not what I expected it to be. What were you expecting and what did you get? So I was expecting, hey, welcome to the platoon, welcome to the unit, Sergeant Rosser. Here's what's going on. Big, happy family, shaking hands. And I show up and I'm welcomed with a few NCOs who are not so welcoming as I thought they were going to be. And it was definitely a little bit discouraging as a leader, as, again, I I thought that that was, I didn't even think that was going to happen. Uh, and I show up, and they pretty much, hey, we don't need you. You can go back, talk to the sergeant major. This is this is how it's going to be. We've been doing fine without you. And, and I was really hoping for my battle buddy, the lieutenant, to kind of be there to kind of either speak up or to even stop it from happening or to kind of have had a, a better impact on the on the platoon. But that just shows you to always be prepared um, to – make swift action and immediate action to make the right decision on that kind of behavior. Because if, had I not spoke up or had I just allowed it to happen, it would have continued to happen, that attitude. Uh, I don't know what all had been going on in the unit prior to me showing up, but I definitely know that I was definitely disappointed, but I also saw it as an opportunity to provide my leadership to that platoon and to help pick up my battle buddy, my lieutenant battle buddy, my platoon leader. Were those NCOs that had that attitude other platoon sergeants or NCOs in the platoon or was it the first sergeant? Right, those were those were NCOs in the platoon. There were there were four four NCOs who had been already been there for up to 2 years and had already been serving as the section chief. One had been serving as the platoon sergeant. And you know, again, it was very surprising to have that happen considering those were NCOs who have been running and gunning, taking care of the soldiers, taking care of the mission, delegating tasks, taking care of everything that needed to happen as kind of it was like a, a shocker that one day there would be a new platoon sergeant to show up to to be a part of the unit. Those first few nights when you went home from the battery, what was going through your head? <laughs> what did I get myself into? Those first few days, I knew that it was going to be a challenge because as I had kind of alluded to earlier, if you don't make a decision quick enough or if you react the wrong way, if you don't react the right way, your next several weeks or the next future with that unit is detrimental. And I was trying to figure out how can I best take care of this one day at a time, uh, one task at a time. You kind of go in with the idea of how can I make the right impact, right? Whenever you, wherever it is that you go, you, you definitely have the best interest in mind to do the right thing, to take care of everyone, to take care of your soldiers, to take care of the mission. But when you have a situation like that as a leader, it is vital to take one day at a time and try to take it in stride because it's like a marathon. You can't figure it out all in one week, all in one day. There's there's no way possible that you're going to be able to do that quickly. So it's just trying to figure out how to take care of this the right way with your with the help of your supervisors, your first sergeant, your commander, and other battle buddies, other mentors that you should be reaching out to. That interaction with the lieutenant, it seemed tepid at first. How did that change over time? You know, and what were the steps that you took to to make sure that you actually became battle buddies? Just spending time with him. It's you're going to be with him or her every single day. It's 
only a matter of time until you're able to have that closed door, close, tough conversations, spending time with them every day, him or her, going to lunch, showing up early together, taking care of each other, supporting each other, having your back, having his back, having her back, and making sure that you're working together, communicating clearly with each other and you're not going around their back and, you know, wanting to kind of be a renegade on your own, you know, you have to remember that, you know, you get a snapshot from the platoon level that it's like a a miniature command team. You're learning how to operate with a a coworker, a battle buddy, a lieutenant officer, an NCO counterpart. You're you're learning it early on because no matter where you go, you're always going to have that NCO counterpart. And, uh, and wherever you're, wherever you're going to go, if it's an S shop, if it's battalion command, if it's company command, brigade command, you're always going to have an NCO officer counterpart together. You have the relationship with the platoon leader. You're building it. You're developing it. You're developing the relationship with the soldiers, with the other NCOs. What's going on operationally that, is, that you're driving towards at this time? So each air defense unit has their own mission set. So let's say Forcecom, all the ADA units in the states, they have their own deployment. They have their own schedule, where they're going to go, when they're going to go. The Pacific Theater units, Korea, Japan, they have their own exercises, mission readiness exercises, global response exercises that they have. And then Europe units in the Europe Command, they have their own mission set. So at the end of 2019, the leadership in Southwest Asia, there was a bit of turmoil of the presidency, the general, just the leadership of what was happening next. And so we thought that we were going to be going to one location as we were getting ready to ramp up to deploy. And our staging area was in Kuwait. We thought we were going to be going to Bahrain. And at the beginning of January of 2020, Soleimani had conducted the airstrike and hit a few of the military bases around the area where we were at. So that kind of put a halt on us, and that's kind of, we were in a sitting, kind of sitting ducks. We didn't know what was going on, and that was, you know, you heard a lot of commotion of, hey, we're not going to Bahrain. We're going to go to this place. We're going to go to that place, and so the Patriot units haven't been to, at this time, they hadn't been to Iraq since the kickoff of you know, Operation Enduring Freedom when they were shooting down scuds against Saddam Hussein. So they, it had been approximately 20 years since a Patriot battery has been in, has been in Iraq. Shorat had been in the area. They deployed rotationally around Afghanistan and Iraq at the time. And so it was a pretty big deal to hear Patriot is going to be going again in Iraq. But it wasn't for certain. You heard it, commotion from various leaders or commotion from the soldiers that somebody heard this or somebody heard that. And it happened that we went to northern Iraq to, in, in response to the, the strike that Soleimani had in that area. Before we get to Iraq, you deploy to Kuwait thinking you're going to Bahrain when the rumors start circulating among the troops, right? The, the, the Spec 4 Mafia... Is, is spreading the rumors that, oh, we're going to go here, we're going to go there, you know, we're invading Iran, whatever those rumors were. How did you as a platoon sergeant, and you know, what did you do with your platoon leader to quell those rumors? You know? The best way that we tried to take care of the rumors was 
we tried to control the narrative, meaning here's what your orders say. There's a lot of hearsay of we're going here or there, but as of right now, your orders say Kuwait. If we go into Iraq, then we go into Iraq. And you're gonna, you, people are going to talk. Soldiers are going to have their own excitement of what they're going to do if we have to go in. We're carrying our weapons and everything. But the best thing that we could do is just stay focused on here's the task that we're given. We still have to focus on readiness. We still have to focus on weapons cleaning. We still have to focus on vehicle maintenance. We still have to focus on our gunnery tables. So we tried to just stay focused on that and didn't buy into everyone sharing their thoughts and sharing, here's what's going to happen. What if we did this? What if we did that? Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was fun to talk about to an extent, but as a leader, you don't want to go down the rabbit hole of just downward spiraling into crazy questions uh, and just being in lockstep with, with my battle buddy to just, like I said, stay focused on the task that we're given because it was, it was, it just seemed like every night when the command team would come back from the commander's huddle with the battalion leadership and the other first arts and commanders, there was always something new, two or three different tasks that would come out every night because we, we held up in Kuwait for a few weeks before we pushed into Iraq. And so every day it was something new. And it was pretty wild to think we still have all these tasks that we have to complete, even though we're downrange. So that was a good opportunity for us to just to continue to stay focused training because we would still train, we would still do gunnery, we would still, still do marksmen, you know, you know, everything that was still normal, just waiting for the official word to say, hey, here's where you're going, or here's where you're staying. When the commander came out of the huddle and the word was Iraq, what went through your mind? Wow, it's really happening. So when ADA deploys, you know, we go to locations that are already hard structured and set up, living pretty good on the Air Force bases. This deployment, however, was not that. It was tents everywhere, you're digging trenches, you're roughnecking it to say, because again, 20 years ago was the first time and last time that air defense was in, or Patriot was in Iraq. So my first thoughts were, how are the soldiers going to operate routinely how we normally would with going back and forth with chow, hygiene? Those were the things that I was thinking about because I know that that affects morale. I knew everything else would fall into place. We would, we would fall into our routine of work, our battle rhythm 24 hours on, or if it's eight-hour shifts or 12-hour shifts. That, uh, that would all fall into place. It was the, it's the behind-the-scenes that you don't always think about when we show up, okay, where are the bags going to go? Where are the tents going to be at? Are the tents even going to be set up? And they weren't set up. You show up and it's raining. You have to set up the tents. You have to dig the trenches around so that way the, the rain would go around the, the tent rather than go through the tent, which happened when we showed up because it was just constant moving around. We moved around a few different places where we were deployed in Iraq. And that was a learning curve and an experience to, that I gained that I'm very grateful for because that helped everyone that was a part of that deployment learn something valuable to not be comfortable and think that everything is going to be easy and just to kind of put away from sometimes we have to really think things through. You deploy into Iraq, no hard stands. It sounds like you're living in the dirt. At this point, are you still having issues with these NCOs or did the shift you know, kind of somewhere along the line, a shift happened with them. The incident with the NCOs, that was that ended immediately. 
I mean, for the first week, it was tight tensions with the one particular NCO that had approached me in front of the other NCOs that told me that they didn't need me. Just the tough conversations that I had with him and the other NCOs, that ended after the first week. He had gotten moved to another unit, and from there on, we we, we were grinding. We, we had to work things out and move on. There's no need to hold a grudge. You're, not, you're never going to always have the ideal person or the ideal leader or the person who you think you should have or the person that you want to have or you want to be. You have to adapt. As leaders, you have to adapt. And that ended, like I said, the first week. And then we, we when we pushed into country, like I said, we were just focused on the mission. We were focused on the task. We were focused on training. We were focused on gunnery. Th- that behavior ended quickly. And, I mean, you're going to have tough times up and down when you deploy. But as far as the challenges that we were talking about earlier, platoon leader and I, we, we, we got focused, and we were focused from early on. Getting the battery ready to fire, getting the, you know, the radars up, the, bet, the launchers up, the control station going, did that sense of mission and purpose help mitigate possible morale issues? You know, we thought we were going to hard stands and now we're living in tents. You know, I think everyone already had the idea what was going to happen whenever we deployed because when we were deploying and going through our, our gear, our weapons, our equipment, we were bringing everything. And although we had ideas that you know we were going to have to use the tents, we also had the feeling of, okay, hey, we're really kind of going through a lo- this a little bit deeper than we normally would as the leadership that was in the unit who have deployed already. It just kind of had, you had that feeling of, hey, we really need to look in our equipment, look into the tents. And we had the idea that it wasn't going to be the typical deployment. So it wasn't that much of a challenge in the beginning when we deployed and it wasn't hardship billets, hard stands, big beds or whatever. We were already mentally prepared for, hey, we're going to have to grind through this. At least we thought that. What was the understanding you had of your mission in Iraq, and what did you tell the soldiers? The mission set that I went in with my platoon leader was, let's treat this as the same way we would as we are training, which is train to standard, take care of those around you, don't cut corners, do it the right way, stay focused. So if you train that way, you're not going to deviate when it comes time when in need, when you have to crank up those launchers and lock onto a target. You're doing it the same way every single time. I had a squad leader tell me years ago whenever I first got in, he would say, Ross, do it the same way every single time. Do it the same way every single time. Do it the same way every single time. And that getting beat in my mind every single day, every single week when we were on my first deployment, do it the same way every single time. That I didn't veer away from that over the years. And so, again, answering your question, there was really no difference of where we got, where were we going to be at, what were we were going to be doing, because I knew as long as we do the right thing, training to standard, the right way, we would be okay. As a platoon sergeant, you're dealing with a lot of first-term soldiers who haven't probably deployed before. This is 2019-2020. You're dealing with not only 
the recent Iranian strikes in, in Iraq, but also COVID. How did you maintain morale? How did you sense the soldiers reacted to both of those situations? Soldiers are going to be soldiers, the same for lieutenants, the same for NCOs. They're all humans, right? So we all have ideally the same kind of habits. I want to work out. I want to eat good. I want to sleep good. And I want to get my mail. You're going to learn early on that those are kind of your biggest impacts on morale is working out, eating good, sleeping good, and receiving your, receiving your Amazon packages, receiving your letters from home. And you really had to just give them the opportunity and the space to operate as an adult and try not to micromanage. When you get overseas, you're going to have a different battle rhythm. And so setting the temperature, per se, on the morale and allowing your, your soldiers and your NCOs have the, the free liberty of, hey, I don't want to work out at this time or I don't want to do PT at this time. I mean, you go in letting them know, hey, we're going to have this set standard on our physical fitness. And if we stay right here, you're going to be able to work out on your own. Now, I can't promise that everybody, all the units are going to be able to operate around that. But for the most part, that's what you typically see is, hey, you keep high standards, you're going to be able to work out on your own. Sometimes you can't always control how you're sleeping, but you learn techniques along the way. If you're sleeping on a cot, you learn how to kind of lay out your mat a certain way, or you kind of learn how you figure things out. And then when it comes to ordering mail, you kind of tap into that whole, here's how long it's going to take. So with the morale, that really is going to be the best that you can make it. And those around you, just to kind of encourage those who haven't experienced being away from home, who aren't always going to be able to pick and choose what they want to eat. I'd like to capture that. You were asking about the food or morale and how that was like with the cafeterias, the defects. Going in that time with COVID, there was a time when the dining facilities it just completely shut down. So we were eating MREs every single day for months at a time. And for me personally, I'm, I'd like to think that I'm a pretty motivated person on thinking of family and being able to exercise and just trying to make the best out of things. You know, I'm a half, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, mm -hmm. right? Not a half empty. And so when we had to start eating MREs every day, it really didn't bother me. But when my platoon leader and I, we started noticing some indicators of attitude, short temper, and then we don't want it. We don't want this. We don't want that. And then obviously we're realizing it's the MREs. They're been getting tired of eating the same thing every day. That was a new challenge for me because up until this point of the 13 years of my career, I never had to have to deal with someone who is upset that they can't have what they want to eat and they're tired of eating MREs. Because again, you know, it's like I'm only thing I'm kind of hit with is I, w I miss my family. I wasn't thinking about, man, I can't have my pecan pie and my bang bang shrimp that they're serving at the DFAC. I'm eating my ravioli MRE and just like you are, me and you, we're eating the same things every single day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So you have to learn quickly how to step in and just to say, hey, we're doing this together. It's not like you're getting singled out. So there's no secret answer to how you could approach that besides how I tried to handle it whenever I got to the unit, one day at a time, being patient and just trying to take care of everyone around you that you're responsible for. 
I mean, did you do the the platoon wide MRE cook off, or you know, what were some of the ways that you did try to mitigate these issues? I mean, you get creative. I'd like to think I'm already good at eating. I, I like to eat, and I like to eat, and I like to eat. Uh, you, you mix up thir- certain things, you mix up foods, you mix up MREs, you trade, you, hey, did you try this one? No, I don't like, no, you end up eating everything. But then there, there does come, there comes a point in time when you hit a brick wall and you're like, I just can't do it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore, but you have to, because that's, that's what you have. And so as a leader, you don't complain, you make the best of it. The soldiers know what's going on. They, they know because they're doing it with you. And as long as you're being transparent for the most part of being a human like they know so it's not like you're you're faking the funk of hey this is great you know everything's good everything's okay and you you know you're eating something different behind the scenes away from them that's not the case everybody's eating the same thing every single day and then over those over the course of a few months during the deployment during that covid time things improved there was Meal times that improved. They opened up the the defect for breakfast for some, something cold, a salad or some macaroni or something, bread, peanut butter and jelly. I mean, when you've been eating MREs, you know, and they offer you a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, some slices of bread and some little packets of jelly and and peanut butter. That's a game changer. That's a huge morale booster. And then from there, it just keeps going forward with opening up and and then that's that's honestly just. That was our experience during the COVID, the, the closeout on the defect. That was that was a pretty big deal. I want to take it away from the morale issue and talk a little bit about, again, getting the battery ready to, to operate. You've shown up in a dirt field. What's your role as a platoon sergeant to take it from dirt field to radars and launchers up? So before we can even do that, you got to go back before we deployed. And that was in the motor pool. That was going through the inventory of the equipment, your tents, your your cots, what you're going to be sleeping on, uh, all of your all of your hundred mile an hour tape, all of your ropes, all of your vehicles. You're going through everything. You're checking the tents that have holes in it, the tents that don't have holes in it, because there's nothing nothing worse than laying on a cot looking up at the top of the tent and you see the sky or you see the stars. And so you that's that all happens before you deploy. Because once you show up and you have to set everything up, everything else is going to fall into place. So that preparation as a platoon sergeant is you're arriving, you have your tasks, that here's what needs to happen. There's implied task, and then there's the direct task. Hey, this is what has to get done. And everything in between it is up to you and your platoon leader to take care of the soldiers, to say, hey, here's what we need to do. We need to set up the tents. We need to set up the cots. Yeah, you have to operate also within what the, what the battery, the, here's the area where we have to set up. But besides that, you're going to operate as a platoon. And, hey, here's how you can set your bags up. Let's kind of have just right dress. And the cots kind of face this way. I got two feet of space. You got four feet of space. Hey, we need to even things out. And so boots on ground, you're already thinking as a leader, as you and your LT counterpart, Okay, hey, here's what you, what do you want to take point on, sir or ma'am? Do you want to you want to get the back brief from the commander? I'll take. Let's get the bags moved, and then we set up and we'll rally up by the bunker. So as a platoon sergeant, that's what you're thinking about is steps one to five and everything in between it. And then you have to have those implied tasks of hey, here's how we're going to do this, and here's how we're going to kind of work together. And you're not always going to be able to get the ideas from everybody. Hey, what do you want to do? How do you want to do it? A lot of the time. It's going to be 
here's what needs to happen. You can ask questions later, but for the most part, here's what needs to happen. The process of turning a dirt field into a Patriot battery position, was that something you could do all in-house, or did you need to rely on external resources? I had a first sergeant at the time that definitely scuffed us up pretty good because when we would have challenges and we needed answers, we'd ask and he'd say, you got to figure it out. And it drove us crazy because we wouldn't know what we needed to do because, again, we're in a whole new location. It's new for all of us. And I'm glad that, looking back on it, I am glad that the first sergeant forced us into figuring it out. Was it frustrating? Absolutely. Do I want to handle it that way all the time? No. Will I handle it that way some of the time? Yeah. With the help of those around you, we're going to figure it out together. But setting up the Patriot site and the living site, two different locations. You don't want to sleep in the area where you know you have the Patriot missile site. You've got loud generators going You've got the launcher station, the launching stations up and running. And so with the resources that we had, we had the engineers who came from Kuwait, and they were leapfrogging around Iraq, Kuwait, Afghanistan, and we took a grass field and turned it into an actual Patriot missile site where they poured gravel, they cleared out the grass, they set up sites, they set up little pads with, with concrete barriers around, with concertina wire. We you know worked hand-in-hand hand with the engineers and then the support on this base that we were on. It was a combined joint task force, you know, all the countries that are all allied supporting one another, the same mission. It was a great opportunity to be able to roll up your sleeves and work with others that you don't normally work with when you deploy. How, as a platoon sergeant, did you take those lessons and impart them on your troops? Hey, this is important. Oh, that was easy because it, it was we were doing it all together. So it wasn't anything where it was like I could just say, "Hey, this is everything that I've done," and just said, "Write it all down and memorize it." No, it was we literally did everything together. Yes, I had to communicate through the command team with my platoon leader, but as soon as we came back from that command team huddle, we were sitting down with the squad leaders and we were just regurgitating everything that we just received, we built the entire site as a team. We didn't build it by ourselves. So having that lessons learned, it was fairly easy because we, again, we were doing, we were rolling up our sleeves together and we were digging holes, pouring sandbags. I mean, it was 150, 130 degrees. Humidity was high. I mean, everybody's sweating. Everybody's complaining, smoking and joking. It's, it's you're out there grinding together and that is the nucleus of that camaraderie that you're going to see whenever you spend that one-on-one time whenever you have that sweat equity that you invest into the soldiers and to the men and women that you're working with that's what makes the difference in a successful unit and a non-successful unit is spending time with your soldiers every day you know obviously you want to give them some personal time obviously but that experience those lessons learned it was very clear early on from the beginning we're all doing this together and we're we're all learning from each other you can't have i'm only going to learn from the the higher ups anybody who outranks you it's no you're you're learning every day there's a new technique of how to like we were talking about the whole the cot how do you sleep different i ordered this or i brought this or i lay my cot out like this my my sleeping bag or 
hey, I'm going to hold this this uh, sandbag this certain way. I'm going to we're going to work together, or I know how to. You're learning. You're learning every day. And when you spend time with your soldiers and you're showing them the humility of, hey, I'm, I'm I miss my family too. Those lessons learned. That's really what makes the difference as a as a young lieutenant, even as a young NCO or a senior NCO or a senior officer, spending time with soldiers regularly makes the difference on lessons learned. When you transmitted the we're ready to fire message up to higher headquarters, what were you feeling? It definitely was it was nervous. We were we were a bit stressed out and anxious because again, we hadn't been in that part of the world since the beginning of, of Operation Enduring Freedom. And so receiving those intelligence briefings where this threat, this threat, the potential bombing, it was a constant report weekly. And when it finally happened, that was that was a big deal because none of us, had, a few of the NCOs or a few of the individuals in the unit had experienced anything like that from prior deployments if they were infantry or other branches besides air defense or the community. That was a big deal. So that ready of, hey, we're ready, and then it's happening, again, you have to just trust the training because when you do it the right way, when you train to standard, that's when things fall right into place the right way. It's happening. What happened? So every week we're getting intelligence reports of potential bombings, potential threats, perimeter, enemies coming through the perimeter, breaching, um, even with the the workers who work at the cafeteria, the DFAC, or they come and clean the, the portable latrines. You're, you always have to be ready. And you kind of take it one day at a time. You try not to get too complacent after the 20th intelligence report that says we're going to get bombed. But then when it finally does happen, but you you just have to rely on, I know where I need to go because you rehearse it, you talk about it regularly. And again, you try not to get too complacent, even though this is the 20th time this month or the 20th time this week that we, we have a report of a bombing. And when it when it happened, I remember I was off shift with my crew and you heard a loud thunderous sound of like large firework going off and I sat up in my bunk and I look over at my platoon leader and we run out the door and I remember joking and laughing at my platoon leader because you know we're we're pretty much sleeping in our our PTs or whatever you're sleeping in near the the end of the night and I joked at him because you know he was he ran out with his weapon. We everybody pretty much ran outside of the tent to kind of see what was going on. Uh, could you see anything that you heard? And then it sounded like it was a couple football fields away of a loud and thunderous explosion, and you knew exactly what happened. And I wasn't laughing anymore at my LT walking running out with his weapon and his PTs or shorts on. I mean, the first thing you do is. I mean, the first thing we did was we ran straight out to get the soldiers and make sure they're clearing out the tents and they're going to the bunkers where they were supposed to be at. And then securing your gear, going back in the tent, clearing the tent, making sure everybody's out, getting a head count. You know, you see different expressions. You see excitement. You see a little bit of confusion. You see a little bit of big concern to what's going on. What do we need to do? Are we going out to our site? Are we staying put? And so there's a lot of questions that everybody, are, you know, everybody's asking, but at kind of a time like that, everybody just has to just halt, stop, 
and allow one thing to happen at a time, allow the first sergeant, allow the commander to communicate through the security forces there on the base, on the compound where we were at. We get a head count, get accountability, make sure we know where everybody's out, make sure we know where everybody's at on our site, where everybody's at on the compound. Hey, who's out getting midnight chow? Who's not getting midnight chow? Where is it? Where? That's the first thing that you're doing is getting accountability. We didn't have any casualties. No one took any casualties while we were there. It, it, the first one landed right off the airfield, which was about two football fields away from our compound where we were at, uh, sleeping in our tents. And like I said, everyone was okay. No one got injured. No one never lost any life out there, which was a really ble- was a real blessing. We were very fortunate. And we, we look at it as, hey, we followed our training. We followed what we had been talking about, what's going to happen. We go to this bunker, get a head count. Here's what's going to happen after that. I keep bringing it up. Training to standard. Training to standard. Don't deviate from that. Train to standard. Don't, don't cut corners don't get complacent. You have to remain focused. So when it did happen, as leaders, you have to try to remain calm, stay focused. Your first mission is taking care of your soldiers, and everything else will fall into place because you're training to standard. And when soldiers see genuine care and leadership in their organization being taken care of, they're going to follow you. They're going to move mountains for you. But you have to be genuine and you have to be capital T, trustworthy, capital T. They have to trust you. If they sense anything about you that they can't trust, they'll, they're going to sniff it out quick and you're really going to have a hard time getting anything done. It's going to be, it's going to be tough. It's going to be the Black Hearts book. It's going to be that. And uh, you definitely don't want to do that. What caused the explosion? The explosion came from a mortar that was launched off of or set off off of a small truck or some kind of tube outside of the compound, maybe outside of the city or near the city. Like I said, it went off, and then maybe 10 or 15 seconds later, maybe 20 seconds later, you could hear the eruption away from the compound. How did morale or focus change after the attack? It wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it changed any, everybody just kind of remained focused as they were, yet the tensions kind of seemed a little bit more, I'm on edge a little bit, but then it, I wouldn't say it kind of wore off because again, just you're training to standard when you're doing what you're supposed to do every single day, it shouldn't be any different, but just, hey, I'm sorry, it happened. They fired off a mortar and it could have happened, you know, it could have gotten closer, it didn't land any closer than it did. But you still have to keep doing the same thing. You still have to keep training. You still have to keep operating the right way every day. So it didn't really impact the morale. If anything, it just made us even more focused of, hey, we know why we're here. Now we're seeing it put into perspective of, okay, hey, we're we're defending this area where we are. You're a master sergeant now. You know, your platoon sergeant days are probably over. But if you had to look back to pre-deployment you, what advice would you give yourself? So when I first became a platoon sergeant, I had a command sergeant major give me a book that I'm I'm looking at right now on this table. And for our listeners, it's the first hundred days of platoon leadership, and it is it's like the secret handbook. It's it's not really a secret handbook. It's a playbook really of everything that you would think of as a platoon sergeant or a platoon leader. It puts things into perspective. The morale boosting events 
morning breakfast cooks that y'all have on the weekends or on the study days when you have ideas to go to the range together on the weekends or making a roster to have accountability of where everybody lives, where they, what building they sleep in, what room they have. Those items are the things that you think, but the things that you absolutely need to have, not just, hey, I think we should be doing this. No, oh yeah, we, we need to be doing this. The readiness, has everyone had all of their immunizations? Just kind of putting things into perspective. This book is a literal, literally a play-by-play hey, this is how you should be operating with your platoon leader. And it's it's a, a basic understanding of this is what you should be doing as a platoon sergeant. It's it's not anything crazy. It's it's a very short book. And if I had to give myself any recommendation, it would be read this book, The First 100 Days of Platoon Leadership. Listeners, we'll make sure that we hyperlink that off of MWI's website, so make sure you go and visit the page as well as just listening to the podcast. Mass Sergeant, thanks for giving us a unique perspective from air defense at a strategic and a tactical level, and again, that experience NCO voice. Yes, sir. Thank Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.